You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Reggie Oliver is a playwright, actor, and writer. His plays include Imaginary Lines, Put Some Clothes On, Clarice, The Music Lovers, Winner Take All, Once Bitten. His story collections include The Dreams of Cardinal Vitorini, Masks of Satan, Matter of Mysteries, Mrs. Midnight, and other stories, The Complete Symphonies of Adolf Hitler and other strange stories. His news collection is Amaze for the Minotaur. Thank you for joining me, Reggie. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure. Reggie, you know, one of the things that I find is that for me, collections of the sorts of stories that you write are, are for some reason kind of comfort reading. I, I look forward to reading them. It just like calms me down. It, 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 they're they're wonderful. They're engaging. I, I'd like you to talk about the role of strange stories as comfort reading, as a way for us to kind of get back mm. to ourselves and connect to the world through a world as seen through the lens of the imagination. Yes, I think that's very true, and I think it it uh, it goes back to uh, you know the the most primitive times and when people gathered around a fire and, and told stories and they told stories it's it's partly to to take them into another world but it's also to familiarize themselves with the mysteries and if you familiarize yourself with the mysteries it is in a in a strange way comforting um i mean death is the obvious thing and death the, the knowledge of death, the mystery of death, which everyone will, of us will experience and no one of us has experienced yet. And that's at the core of so much um, storytelling, particularly ancient storytelling. And ghost stories have been, uh, are present in every single culture that you can imagine. So it's, the comforting, I think, is familiarizing yourself with mystery and enjoying it as mystery boy that's so right on you know when i was a kid i used to always watch the twilight zone and and your stories really really bring that back to me and later on i realized that the twilight zone stories and stories like yours are essentially they're the modern version of the Greek myths, where we discuss mm. how we feel about the other world, about, as you mm. said, confronting the mysteries. And I think that they take their place in our minds and in our lives as, you know, myths, as these, your stories especially offer really great visions of, you know, ways to talk about our moral quandaries the mistakes we made, the things we do right morally, but to put them outside of ourselves so that we can look at them and say, yes, there is this strange thing that's happening. Not me. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I mean, a, a, quite a few of my stories have, 
have been based in one way or another on on a path that I might have taken. Uh, <laughs> at, at, I mean, I, I, I just think of a particular example, an early story of mine called In Arcadia. I was doing, a, um, I used to do quite a bit of radio, poetry readings on radio. And for some reason, we did one on location at a country house at a place called Ingotston in, in Essex. And um, it was completely deserted. We could wander around. There was just one room where we did the the, the music and the, the recitals. And I was wandering along the passage and I saw a little painting uh, that had fallen off the wall. And um, I had taken a, a, a briefcase with me to put my script in. And I thought, I could steal this painting and nobody would ever know and I could put it in my case and I could walk away with a perfect crime. And then the reason why I didn't was not really moral. It was because I knew that if I had taken that, it was a rather beautiful old 17th century painting of a, a landscape, an Arcadian landscape as it happens, hence the in Arcadia. And I knew that if I did take it, the thing would torment me. I would be become obsessed by this thing and I would eventually have to t return it. And then, and so this story is based on the fact, what if I had stolen it and this p painting had, had obsessed me and I kept drawn into this painting and, and uh, inhabited the, and so on. So that's, that's the way it, it happens. You, 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 you look at things that you might have done or you might have experienced and and uh, and it's it's a good it's a good exercise you know the 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 the, the robert frost quote the road less traveled as it were <laughs> now for the road not traveled as it were. Yes. exactly um i'd like you to talk about because you do so many different stories and each story takes out on a a different character. It strikes mm -hmm. me that there might be a, a strong correlation between your ability to write in various voices from various perspectives in various situations, uh, and your your acting. So tell us a little bit about you know your work as an actor and how that informs your stories, and if it, if at all, and. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I guess we can see even in yeah in yes. your previous example, it certainly does. I I think it, oh, it definitely does because my approach is 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 through voices, and uh, you know when I was an actor, I still am. I'm I'm going to do something later on this this year, uh, a performance of Murder in the Cathedral, which I've done which I've done before, and. Um, I always find that some the way into a character is to find a voice, you know, uh, and you find somebody talking like that, and you you immediately get an impression that this is a very scholarly man, and you can you can you can find your way into his processes of thought, uh, and um, this is what I do in. Uh, I mean, I, I started off my, as it were, my writing career as as a playwright, <laughs> as the biography indicates. And um, you know, when I was when I was writing, I would always be 
be playing the characters and trying out the voice. Yes, he he would say that, and he would say it in this particular voice, or, or that particular voice, you know, like that, or hello, yes, like that. Uh, and um, you, the, the the character would come alive inside me for that reason. And um, instant, there's a there's a very um, interesting um, thing that. Uh, uh, I, I've done quite a bit of translating of uh, a playwright called Georges Fedeau, who's a great fast writer. And one of the things he said, which I think is very good, is he, he, he said, in order to write fast, um, one, of the, one of the tricks is to find two people who absolutely must not meet each other and bring them together. And I've applied this also to two just ordinary stories. It's a, it's a, you can think of two people. I've, I've done it on, on several occasions. Of course, you elaborate it. Two people in your in your experience who didn't meet, you know, friends of yours. You know how diverse your friends are, and you there are some friends of yours you don't want to meet other friends because you know they just won't get on, and you bring them together, and something happens, and so that's a, a sort of device learnt from a, a playwright which applies very much to, 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 to stories and storytelling, I think. You know, I, I have to say right now that you are the author of what I think is the best title horror story ever written. Just from the title, it, it sends shivers through your spine and, and it the story starts writing itself in your head before you even read the first word. And I'm talking about the title story for The Complete Symphonies of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> now, yes. that that is such a, a brilliant title, and your story is equally brilliant. I'd like you to talk about the importance of titles and then just discuss creating that story. Yes, I, and... and, and uh, I always, uh, I, I notice that other writers have said, said this that that if they do collections, they they the 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 title of their collection is always based on the best title, not necessarily the best story. Though I think I, I'm I'm very fond of um, the complete symphonies of Adolf Hitler, and these things just come to you. It, it 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 was a very I mean I know exactly how that came about. Um, I was in London, and oddly enough, I was uh, about to um, work, uh, do a recital at a, a, a reading at a at a concert of a of a, a composer whom I I knew, rather sinister character, incidentally. But that's another story. And I I I I'm fast. I love classical music. Now I went into a classical music store, and I saw. Um, a, a big box set, which uh, said, um, of, of, it, it was a set of conducts by, uh, of symphonies conducted by um, a Dutch composer called Adolf Mengelberg. Um, and I, I said, I, I read it as, as uh, uh, Mengele, who was the uh, terrible Auschwitz doctor. And I thought, a symphony by and um, uh, by um, by Mengele. That's a sounds yes. That uh, supposing 
in a in an alternative world, um, uh, Hitler had been a composer, and it's it started me on a sort of a realm of speculation, which um, is at the back of the story rather than at the front of the story about whether a work of art in itself can be intrinsically evil, uh, and whether you get a, a sense of evil from a work of art done made by a, an, an evil person and uh, or, or somebody and uh, I sometimes feel like that about some of the music of Wagner and that that sort of uh, came into it um, I remember uh, the first time I listened to um, uh, Wagner's overture to Rienzi his one of his early operas not often done and I got the distinct sense of, of something unpleasant and, and evil, whether that was intentional or not. I later discovered, incidentally, that uh, Hitler had uh, claimed that he had thought up the whole idea of, of the Nazi party after uh, attending a um, production of, of Wagner's Rienzi. Uh, so that, that, that was another idea which fed into that that uh, thing that that a man's evil uh, can be expressed in in different ways in in one world it may have been expressed in in political and and um, uh, terms of atrocities which Hitler committed but if something in an alternate world Hitler might have been a composer or an artist and that um, intrinsic evil that was in him might have expressed itself in terms of music or in terms of painting which he tried uh, he tried to be a painter for example i i just thought it, it was a, very, a wonderful story too also about our <clears throat> our obsessions with music with art the way that we you know once you start down that collector's path Yes. That's a that's an uh, a rat hole that is really mm. tough to escape. That's the the traditional uh, Chinese finger trap. You know, once you get in, it's the harder you try to get out, the more you get stuck <laughs> inside. Yes. Mm. I think that pl that played a part because um, I can I can get obsessed, and I've I've written other stories about about uh, people becoming obsessed. Uh, as another about somebody uh, um, being obsessed by uh, an old murder case, and that's based on on um, uh, a writer friend of mine called uh, Elizabeth Jenkins, who lived to the age of a hundred and and wrote a number of of quite well known books uh, novels, and she became obsessed by. A murder case which you've probably never heard of. It's an English murder case called the Bravo murder case, and one of the characters involved in it. And she became so obsessed in it with it that she not only wrote a novel about it, but she tried to get in touch with one of the characters, one of the real life people involved in this murder, a man called Doctor Gully, via a medium. So you can't get more obsessed than that. That's really interesting. You know, one of the things I, I've noticed about reading your short stories is that 
in the realm of short stories, it's an interesting medium because there's a number of kind of approaches you can take. Some of them you can take, you know, like it can almost be like, you know, a single episode, like a brief snippet where mm-hmm. as a reader, you feel like you come in after the beginning and also yes. you feel like you leave just before the end. And other short stories, and I think you're good, you're wonderful at both the kinds. The other short stories manage to almost feel like a sh- an entire short novel. I mean, and I think this comes too from film a- adaptations. Uh, uh, you know, a novella is, I think, the mm-hmm. ideal length for a film a- adaptation. Yes, yes. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the title story for your latest collection, A Maze for the, for the Minotaur. <laughs> this has the feeling of that. I mean, you know, there's a, <clears throat> a long series of events, and it's really an interesting story. It, it, it's very intense, and I think a little darker, more disturbing, I think, than, than your usual oeuvre. So talk mm-hmm. about, I guess, modulating your oeuvre and, you know, from lighthearted and, you know, uh, adventure, you go through a, a, a number of things, but also talk about the, the writing that, you know, not a novel in what feels like a novel in 40 pages or so. Yes. Yes. Um, and I mean, I do conceive it like that, um, very much as, as, as an arc with a, a, a crisis and a resolution to a certain extent. And um, the, gr- the great thing about short stories is, is that, that they do come, uh, you have to work them out, but they do come to you as, as, a, as, a, as a whole. And um, um, uh, Virginia Woolf described novels as baggy monsters. In other words, you can, you can <laughs> put all sorts of things in them and and have several subplots. I mean, the only difference between a short story and uh, and a novel or most novels is that um, is that you can't have a subplot. I mean, that's the real the real difference. You can't have um, uh, two parallels stories. At least, I mean, I suppose you could try it with a short story, but I don't think it would it would work. And um, Edgar Allan Poe said an, a, a very interesting thing is, is um, he said, he talks in one of his essays, and I, I um, get this from, I haven't read it, I, I get this from some, he talks about the power of the single image. And I think the real difference, uh, you, can, you can make it as, as long and, and you can elaborate it, but, um, most short stories rely on a single powerful image, and if you did put that in a novel, you'd—I uh, think—you might get rather, rather tired of that single image. But, but um, all all the great um, horror short stories rely on this powerful image, beginning with, of course, Edgar Allan Poe. You know, the telltale heart pit on the pendulum. Descent into the Maelstrom, all these wonderful stories. What what remains with you is this single image, and then you get up to the the ghost stories of M. R. James, the horrible face of crumpled linen, and so on. And that's that's the power of the short story, that that you get this 
um, you get this, you come away, generally speaking, with a single idea or a single image, which is really, really powerful. And it's undiluted by subplots and diversions, uh, excellent as, as those are in, in the form of a novel. Now, uh, A Maze for the Minotaur, which is uh, itself a great mm -hmm. title, especially mm -hmm. given the story that is, talk about that story. It's really interesting. I think you do create, it's, um, a, a really disturbing in image. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I've never been particularly frightened by by the the Greek Minotaur. I'm intrigued, mm -hmm. but your Minotaur, on the other hand, yes. is is thoroughly terrifying. So talk about creating that story, and also the uh, import of the revenge aspect to to horror fiction. I mean, in a sense. Horror fiction is based largely, almost, you could say, around revenge. Yes. I, I mean, <clears throat> what, I, what I think is, is interesting about it is that, um, is that I, uh, I'm particularly interested in something which, which seems just bizarre and can seem funny. Oddly enough... Um, Long, long ago, um, uh, I lived uh, as a child in, in St. John's Wood, and um, my father, who's a journalist, was also uh, 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 very keen on local, local history. And he introduced me to this uh, story, which is in a, in a book about St. St. John's Wood. And what I was interested in in two things. One is to convey the atmosphere of this particular part of London, which has a particular kind of of strange atmosphere, and uh, the fact that it was um, the, uh, the the sort of domain of, of very high class um, uh, prostitutes. Uh, Edward the Seventh, the King Edward the Seventh, used to visit his favourite mistress called Skittles there. And there was this this character who who liked to put uh, who liked to throw jam, jam tarts at naked prostitutes. That was his what he got off. And what interested me was the fact that something that was so ludicrous was really deep down rather sinister, and and was the reflection of a of a deeply um, perverted, disturbed human being. And I always felt that 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 um, that, that horror uh, is 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 at its best when it's not, as it were, straight on horror, that it there's an element of the grotesque, even the even the comic, and that heightens. Uh, the, the bizarre element of it, and um, the, the the comedy that is in in horror uh, heightens the nastiness because it it seems a, you get this double vision, something that's absurd at one at one point, and and horrific at another, and doubly horrific because it's it's also absurd. I mean that's uh, you know. You know, part of one's vision of life is that is that 
is that life uh, can be terrible and completely grotesque and absurd. You know, people laughing at funerals. It's 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 a well-known thing. And um, this man, this man uh, who was called the Minotaur, obsessed me. And I'd I'd written before a couple of other short stories about about this this phenomenon, this character. And they didn't they didn't quite work. And then suddenly it 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 all came together in in this story. You know, I, I the the first story in the collection, the old man of the woods. Mm. I can just tell by the title of that that that's going to be an intriguing story. And you have a really great quote in here. Um, you write one of your characters says. You can be frightened into evil, but not into goodness. Do you not think <laughs> that yes. that's a very interesting observation? I thought, and I think that um, it it's a strikes one a is true. It also um, is a great setup for this character of the, the old man of the woods and that kind of legend. That that is a universal legend throughout mankind's time. So talk about bringing that legend to life. I think that you've done, you know, similar. You've dealt with this theme form, and I think one of your talents is to be able to um, explore the same theme with different characters, to slightly mm. different situations, and make them all engaging and, and really fulfilling to read. Yes, um, the, I mean the, the old man of the woods. The, the the sort of myth of it is 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 partly made up and it's partly based on on something I heard long ago. You know, when I was at school, somebody uh, in the old days preachers used to tell wonderful stories. They don't so much now, as far as I know, uh, about a man who lost his soul and and uh, and. Uh, I've there are so many uh, stories. There's um, uh, uh, a <coughs> a book which somebody gave me called "A Man Without a Shadow" by one of the German people, and um, I think this is this is this is powerful. This is very powerful. I mean, you even get in in a sort of tri frivolous way in in J. M. Barry's Peter Pan when Peter Pan cuts off his his own shadow. And I think that these, these myths are there to be uh, explored and exploited and, and, and looked at in, 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 in different ways. And um, it's, uh, I, I, I'm particularly fond of that story also because it's, it's based on um, a house that uh, my late wife and I uh, had once once had in France, and um, there was a lot of woodland around. And uh, the French attitude to woodland is 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 different from ours. It's it's the, the, it basically for them it's it's um, a place to hunt in and and look for mushrooms. And it's uh, we don't have quite that sort of attitude. And um, I was interested in that, but but um, these old myths and and legends. Oh, there's an, 
do in inspire inspire one um and i've i've used a lot of uh, quite a lot of myths uh, there's a um, i've used a, a japanese myth there was a famous uh, there was a great uh, writer you um, you know called uh, algernon blackwood Oh, one and, of my favorites. And I remember hearing uh, he he used to broadcast a lot on before I was born on on the radio. But I've heard a sort of re-recording of him, and I always remember something that haunted me, talking about a Japanese uh, legend, one which which I used in, a, in other, another story, of this man passing by a graveyard and seeing these strange figures flitting about and people with, who had no features at all on their faces and um, he uh, is walking along and he passes by an old lady and um, she's a perfectly normal old lady and he says you know this this graveyard is very strange all these people going uh, go walking about with no features on their faces and she passes her hand over her face and she says, you mean like this? And <laughs> these things, why do they haunt you? I don't know. Why do they stick in your mind? I don't know. But, but they're, they're the kind of things that, that, that stimulate you to, to write something because they say something about you could analyze it by saying, you know, it's the same thing about losing your soul. People, people, when they become dead, do they lose? Is their soul completely lost? Do they lose all? Do the dead lose all their features? It's it's something, something universal and 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 haunting and something which which we want to explore. I think. When you talk about stories, uh, inspirations, I'm, I'm going to, again, fall back on reading to you from your own book. But <laughs> here's a story that just from the very first line, once you read this line, you know you're going to finish the story. It's the story Corvorn. And the first line is, it is three years ago now since Dennis Marchbanks became a god. <laughs> <laughs> this yes. is. Did, uh, did you when you uh, conceived of writing the story? Was that the first? Was it one of those things where you write that line and say, "Okay, I'm going to finish this one"? Yes, yes. I mean, um, it's based <laughs> again. That's I'm I'm fascinated by by you know the notion of of God and gods uh, in 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 the plural and and precisely the role they they play in in our our lives uh, um but it, it was all <laughs> rather rather oddly based on a kind of a rather vain dream that that uh, i i uh, i was a god and and Corivorn is is a name that occurred to me in a dream i i got it 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 came out of nowhere it came out of my subconscious but i i i'm interested in in this um, this phenomenon of, of, of people who um, have delusions, or rather, have a, have have this sense of, of 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 grandeur. It's it's very interesting that a lot of popular literature um, is based on on 
on on the individual having superpowers or something like that and uh, you know Harry Potter is is like that the whole sort of Superman saga and and all those uh, superheroes is uh, their popularity is um, I mean based on fine writing and imaginative writing in the case of JK Rowling but also on the basis of um, of this belief or this wish wish that we all have to be in some way special some way extraordinary uh, not one of the run of people um, it's 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 the basis of, of a lot of uh, popular fiction and indeed you know in in other respects the infallible detective like Sherlock Holmes is is another supposing I was Sherlock Holmes have Sherlock Holmes's power and uh, so this is this is very potent. Supposing, I, I, you know, in another world, in another life, I was a god. Uh, what 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 I do? And then, and then the the thing is to to work out the sort of um, consequences of that. And that's the the fascinating part of of of, of any of any writing. And uh, you know, I. To give it a kind of comic effect, I, I, I based it on vaguely on on somebody I knew, a, um, a very somebody who I'd known at university, some of, who's now extremely prosperous and successful lawyer, a bachelor. You know, everything is comfortable. Everything comes to him with with ease, and he's he's extremely rich. He's quite well known. He'll probably end up with a knighthood. And uh, and what does this do to him? Does it give him uh, a false sense of his own importance? And is that why he sees himself as a god in another life? You you mentioned comic, and I think that's this is one of the interesting aspects of your writing. Is you do a really good job of putting in some subtle comedy in all of your writing, and. Uh, but at the same time, it's usually combined with unease. And with in the title story, mm -hmm. it, it, there are many scenes that are both like absurdly comic, but also just really super creepy. So, talk mm -hmm. about the relationship for you as both a writer and an actor between comedy and horror. How, you know, walking that line between the two to get both at once. Yes, it's 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 very it's very interesting. I think it it it's partly depends on on how you see life. Um, I, I I was very interested in a, a remark that was made by a, a favorite writer of mine called Anthony Pohl, who wrote the Dance to the Music of Time, and uh, he said, you know, people would sort of complain about, say, Dickens or Dostoevsky that his characters are, are grotesques and absurd and rid ridiculous too too much and he said well you know if you look at people they are grotesque they, i mean uh, donald trump is an obvious example of of a real life grotesque and it doesn't make him any the less dangerous or or disconcerting in fact uh, more so uh, and the, uh, I, I think that there's a very important tension between between 
laughter and 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 horror and often if you if if you're in a, a, a fright a frightening situation you can often laugh you know i mean you we all know the sort of caricature of the medical laugh of the the villain <laughs> you know all that sort of thing uh, and i think there's a sort of reality there's a sort of truth in that that um that evil basically is uh, fundamentally pointless it it's fundamentally self-destructive therefore it is fundamentally absurd and uh, the more absurd you you can make a, a scene the more potentially horrible you can you can make a scene um and uh, I, th I think you know uh, there's just come into my head there's um, a particular passage in dante um, which is, I think, it's the, the one of the circles of hell. Uh, the I think the treacherous or something, or is it the hypocrites? I forget which. But they are all wandering round, and their heads are back to front. And this image sticks in your mind. It's uh, first of all, it's absurd. You could make a sort of comic drawing out of it, but it's also utterly horrible because it is unnatural and uh, and deeply unsettling and um, it's the, the the sort of key of it is to maintain this tension so it's not purely horrible and gore nor is it purely ridiculous but a balance between the two and then then you set up a kind of vibration between the two and that's very exciting you know, we like to think of ghosts as things that exist outside us. There's us and there's the remnant of some dead person who may or may not want to annoy us, disturb <clears throat> us, terrorize <throat> us, or make us laugh. But in reality, humans are quite excellent at haunting themselves and creating yes. their own ghosts. <clears throat> you do a a wonderful job of illustrating this with the story of the wet woman and, and i think that that yes. that story is uh, first off there you talk about a creepy image that the image that is at the center of that which is referred to in the title but oh my god <laughs> that that's something that you're not going to forget once i think you do a great job once you plant that image in our brain the rest of the story almost in a sense writes itself mm. yes yes it's it's going back to Poe's thing of 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 the the power of the sing the single image and and that ge generates um it, it generates it's a, its own its own story um i think it's also important uh, to to find find the right setting for these things and uh, that's that's it's again i think it's very important to find mr james is very good at that of finding a, a setting which is kind of familiar and quite kind of interesting and not necessarily sinister but then you discover 
you discover the sinister in in it. Um, yeah. Now, um, there's the, the this collection uh, finishes up with a, a wonderful novella, and I'm really, really hoping we're going to see more of the two <laughs> characters you you bring mm. us in this because this is the most exciting. Uh, duo, detective duo, I've, I've come across in, in ages. The Armies of the Night. This is is uh, a historical novella, and, mm. and it um, includes it, one of the characters in it is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and at the same time, another character in it is <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover. Yes. <laughs> Talk about... <laughs> bringing two of the most recognizable names in of the 20th century together in a delightful story that is also really quite horrifying on a number of occasions and counts yes. and ways. I had I had enormous fun uh, writing that. It was it was uh, partly it was suggested the vague outline of it was suggested by um Steve Jones, who who uh, was uh, putting it into a, a, a sort of strange kind of combined uh, 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 thing called the, the Lovecraft Squad, which is a sort of novel composed of different stories, uh, but um, but the idea of of of, of J. Edgar Hoover and and, and H. P. Lovecraft immediately uh, appealed to me. Um, Again, it's it's the bringing together, like you know, as Fado says, of of two extremely unlikely people who probably, almost certainly, never le uh, met in life, but um, who have had oddly odd sort of uh, connections with each other. They were both sort of rather ultra uh, conservative uh, people. Um, uh, outwardly deeply respectable, but uh, inwardly with 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 um, various very strange uh, lives. Um, I also had um, great fun with it because um, I'm a great lover of of the works of Damon Runyon. Um, mm, okay. He, uh, and and so I I I longed to use some of that wonderful absurd uh, uh, s s slang that 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 he uses in his his wonderful short short stories you know potatoes for money and um, everybody has an ever loving wife for some reason uh, and i also I mean, it, it you know it's it sort of brings to bed it was it was the coming together of, of things i love i love old uh, broadway a uh, sort of broadway musicals there's early filmed musicals like uh, 42nd Street and things like that. You know, you're going to go out on stage and come back and start. I just love that. And uh, and the, 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 the sort of prospect of bringing all these things together and and love Lovecraft, whose work I think is 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 wonderful and sometimes a bit absurd because of his rather overheated prose at times. But uh, but but who who had a superb and wonderfully original imagination? I mean, the color out of space is 
one of the most extraordinary stories ever written. I mean, that's just one example, but there are many others. Um, and so bringing all these things together, um, I think that's a, that's a sort of a sort of key, you know, again, going back to Fado, bringing things that wouldn't be sort of naturally go together together into into a story and and weaving them together is 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 the most exciting and delightful thing uh, to do and 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 make it work you know gangsters and cthulhu monsters at the same time wonderful you know gangsters v monsters you know it's like like that film cowboys v aliens <laughs> you know um one thing that i think you did quite well in this book is to traverse the ever-changing cultural landscape that were in the midst of, of, pretty, of quite significant cultural changes. And I think, you know, that in this story with, like, for example, you know, the title, uh, I want to call it the title track, <laughs> The, the the title a story mm. the maze for the minotaur and the armies mm. in the night you do a good job of dealing with mm. of showing the perspectives of gender and race that existed at yes. the time the stories are set but bringing in our you know a, a more modern perspective but not letting that perspective dictate either the stories or necessarily the you know the uh, the plots nor the voices of the characters yes. and it's hard to do that you know you try to a very careful line of you know not offensive but you know yes these people they wouldn't get by <laughs> these days yes so so talk about that you know as a writer and as an actor as an artist we're in some times where, where things are changing quickly, and in order to you, on one hand, you want to keep your integrity as an artist and a writer, which mm. you absolutely yes. do with this. It's perfect piece of the of the original Oliver oeuvre, mm -hmm. but also, you know, you read this and you think, yeah, <laughs> this guy is, you know, he's a keen observer of the present even when he's writing about the past yes i mean uh, <clears throat> i mean this it's it's like it's like another country you know um there's a a saying what do they know of england who only know who only england know it's it's the same with with, <laughs> the, with time what do they know of the present who only the present know uh, if uh, and uh, uh, <clears throat> what I what what interests me about writing the past is that it you can use it to reflect on the present and and how different and that you know something like religious fanaticism uh, which which we still have of course um, can be converted into uh, political fanaticism or or the sort of uh, the, the the modern puritanism that we have nowadays um, <coughs> can be uh, can be seen as as another version of of um, 
the the old puritanism of 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 the Victorian era, and uh, you know, covering table legs with 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 um, uh, cloths so that you wouldn't see the, their legs and that that kind of thing, or women showing their ankles and so on. Um, I, I I am fascinated by the whole uh, business of plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Human nature does not change. It's just people's people's taste. And and uh, you you uh, listen to uh, a piece of music today, whether it's modern pop music. If I were listening to that, uh, if I were an 18th century person listening to that, I would I would think this was the most bizarre and terrible cacophony. Um, and equally, we we have a rather. It's it's there's no harm in thinking uh, that um, another country's customs are odd and strange, as long as you realise that the people in the other country also think that your customs are odd and strange, uh, and uh, that I I'm, I I I like writing. I mean, a lot of my stories are in some way. <laughs> about the relationship between the past and the, and and the present and the, ten, the tensions between them and the way that the past illuminates the present and the present illuminates the past. You know, uh, I have to say that not only does the armies of the night deserve a, a sequel, it also uh, it deserves to be made into a movie by, you know one of the many people who are making great work for serial TV. <laughs> um, are, is there any hope of any of that? Because, I mean, that, that thing is just dying to be, <laughs> to be made. <laughs> I mean, you, the combination of humor and horror in there is really, really subtle, but also seems like, you know, accurate to the time. So, so talk a little bit about, has that happened to you, or is that a possibility? Uh, no, I mean, I've... there. Occasionally, I've, the people have sort of inquired about about rights for things. It it it, it hasn't happened, and um, I'm, I, it would be wonderful if it did happen. But I just you know, you see, I started off um, my, my start career as, as an actor and a playwright, and I'm still an actor. Though I haven't written plays for a long time, and the reason why I I stopped writing plays was simply because it's it's very difficult to get a play on unless you're you're sort of a, you know well known as a, a playwright and it's just um, it's just a lot easier to write thing write stories you can get stories published as long as you're reasonably good but but the the, the processes that go into <coughs> producing and making uh, movies and 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 plays and shows are so elaborate and you i mean whenever i, I sort of hear a, a whisper about that sort of thing i never raise my hopes too high because i know from experience how difficult it is to get from the page to the stage or the page to the screen but uh, I, 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 I always, I always live in hopes, and um, I mean, being a playwright, I think that you know, I, I, I write in scenes. That's that's the thing. 
Um, and I, I always have, and I always will. Uh, and um, I'm not, I can think of other writers, uh, Henry James is a good example, who don't write in scenes, in spite of the fact that he was always saying, you know, my key word is dramatize, dramatize. Well, <laughs> poor old Henry James is a fine writer and he he produced some wonderful things, but he doesn't dramatize. And, and uh, you know, thanks something like The Turn of the Screw has been dramatized, but believe me, it would take a, a lot of problems to do so. With With my things, I don't think so much, simply because I think in terms of of of, of scenes, uh, 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 and, you know, it's like running a, a sort of a cinema in your head and and writing it down, um, as far as I'm concerned. And, and one last thing I want to ask about is one of the most delightful parts of all your collections are the illustrations, which mm -hmm. I understand you do. So talk about illustrating your stories. Those are, are mm -hmm. quite lovely. Do you sell the originals? Um, I sell prints of the originals. I, I sort of have have the originals. Um, I, um, I what I what I do is I, I draw them in. Um, here's here's a couple. I don't know if you can see. Oh yeah. Uh, that 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 one's for a story that wasn't included, but um, uh, and oh. I've I've done illustrations for other other people. Um, I, I'm I've been doing a, a children's book for um, for uh, somebody and, and uh, that's the, the color version that's the black and white version Ooh, so nice. I draw them in in in, in a, a4 and then I um, but it, it all came about really when uh, uh, <coughs> my the first publisher of my books <coughs> thought he'd like some little vignettes or something and he thought of sort of getting some and he, I said well I'll, I'll, I'll draw them and and it became a thing and uh, what I what I like about it is that I don't draw the the, the illustration I draw is not a, generally speaking a sort of direct illustration of a scene it's an, a, a sort of another evocation of of the of the mood of the story uh, and um, I, I enjoy doing it in, immensely and I always do them after after the after I finished usually when I, the, uh, the the volume is going into publication and the last thing I do is to, to, to do the drawings and uh, I love doing it partly because um, when I'm writing I can't listen to music but when I'm drawing I can and so and I've, I've I've done some for other people. Here's uh, one or two I did for uh, a collection of of um, by Anna Anna Taborska. You can see there's one about a house oh. which is dominated by Baphomet, and the other is about a, a, a monster who uh, who sort of inhabits a church. Um, and I love doing I, I love doing these very very much, and they're they're really sort of relaxation, but. I like the fact that that uh, that the reader can get another perspective on the story, and it, it uh, you know it establishes a mood if you like, and um, 
it's a sort of uh, unique selling point. I don't know <laughs> many writers who do it. So um, uh, it's it's it, it was started by a, a, a vague suggestion by, by my first publisher, and it's just sort of gone on from there. Reggie Oliver, it's been a delight talking with you. The new collection of stories by Reggie Oliver is a maze for the Minotaur. Thank you for joining me, Reggie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.